amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Good morning and welcome to the NGS NGS Space podcast program, School Law Today, part of our conversations on New Jersey uh, education. Today we'll be uh, discussing special education, but before we get into that, I just want to tell you how you can participate. Uh, we have, uh, you can call 1-347-989-8904, 1-347-989-8904, and just press 1, and that will let me know that you have a question. I do not have anyone screening the call, so I will call you out by the last four digits of your phone number, or we have a chat room available, and that chat room um you do have to log in with Blog Talk Radio, but there is no fee to that. So uh, be- uh, today, as I said before, uh, we will be discussing uh, special education. We have two attorneys with us uh, from who represent uh, different uh, – one represents school districts, one represents parents for the most part. Um, so uh, we're going to discuss the kind of the framework for special education and then where things sometimes may break down. So. I'm very uh, glad to have with me uh, Phil Stern and Stacy Greenwald. Uh, Phil, why don't you introduce yourself first? Good morning. Um, absolutely. Thank you, Ray. Um, I'm an attorney at DeFrancisco, Bateman, Kunzman, Davis, Laren, Flaum in Warren, New Jersey. I've been practicing education law for about 27 years, and before that, I was a teacher. And Stacy? Good morning. Uh, I am Stacy Greenwald from Susan Greenwald and Wessler. Uh, I have been practicing special education law for the last 25 years. Um, my undergraduate work is in special education and speech pathology, um, and I've been representing parents and children with disabilities um, for the last 25 years. Um, I also have two special needs kids myself. So good morning, and thanks for having us. All right. Um, before we get into some of the sometimes where things can break down and the lack of communication. Special education is kind of governed, uh, has a framework, uh, and one of the things that governs that is IDEA. Um, uh, Phil, do you want to just give us a little overview of what IDEA is? Sure, Ray. Um, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act um, is a federal public law. Uh, it's actually a funding law designed to assist school districts throughout the United States of America, uh, educate students with disabilities. Um, It's probably important to point out that prior to the enactment of the IDEA, uh, while there was a law, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, there was a time when students with disabilities were ostensibly ignored in our public educational systems. And so the enactment of the IDEA uh, was designed to um, promote and protect the interests of students with disabilities in public educational settings. Okay, and Stacey, you have anything to add to that? or? 
Um, I would just add that, you know, it, I think it's important to look at the purpose behind the IDEA um, and to follow up on what Phil said. And, and, you know, if you look at the language, it, it talks about to ensure that all children with disabilities have available to them a free, appropriate public education that emphasizes special education and related services designed to meet their unique needs and prepare them for further education, employment, and independent living. Um, and it went on to include parents um, as equal partners in making educational decisions for their children um, and really empowered them to become educational advocates to become part of the process itself. And I'm going to we'll have to remember that because that's going to come in when we talk about communication and the parents being a partner in this. Uh, the other things that uh, come up uh, are uh, FAPE uh, and uh, well, we'll stay on FAPE. Uh, Phil, do you want to explain what FAPE is and uh, how it sure. plays into special sure. education? Sure, Ray. The the um, the use of of acronyms in in uh, educational parlance can often be uh, um, kind of dizzying. So it's helpful to know that, that when one speaks about FAPE uh, in the context of special education, they're talking about a free, appropriate public education. And um, as Stacy was underscoring the purpose of the IDEA, uh, FAPE is seen, a uh, uh, free, appropriate public education is seen as kind of the gold standard and the high bar uh, at which uh, school districts have to, and school districts and parents and guardians of students with disabilities have to uh, have to aim. So uh, FAPE is is the um, provision of an educational program uh, for students with disabilities. And I'm sure as, as the uh, conversation goes on, we'll also talk about um, some recent important decisions regarding FAPE. Yes, and um, the, what goes hand-in-hand -hand with FAPE, uh, and if you want to add anything to FAPE, you can, Stacey, is uh, the least restrictive environment because that comes into play often with the uh, placement. But do you want to give us a little overview of uh, the LRE, least restricted environment? Sure. And I think that you have to, re well, you do need to read it in, in conjunction with FAPE. So when we talk about, mm -hmm. you know, FAPE, the free uh, appropriate public education, the free is, is pretty easy to define and the public and the is easy to design. Education is a broad concept. It includes a lot more than just academics. It's social, it's emotional, it's behavioral, it's communication. It's whatever a child needs in order to receive meaningful educational benefit, um, and that is done through the IEP, and I'm sure we'll get to that later. Um, appropriate, you know, there have been thousands of cases that have gone to define appropriate, but appropriate is really defined um, in context with least restrictive environment. So the least restrictive environment really is the environment closest to home where progress rather than regression or stagnation will take place. For a neurotypical child with, with no um, uh, special education needs, that would really be a mainstream environment. When we talk about a special education child, you know, we favor and the law favors, and in fact the law talks about educating children with their non-disabled peers. Um, and we try to do that to the extent that we can, but if that can't happen because the child's not going to receive meaningful educational benefit, then what we want to do is we want to put the child in the environment closest to home where progress 
uh, rather than regression or stagnation are going to take place. Um, so we always talk about the fact that you can have more than one appropriate program, but only one can be the least restrictive, and that's going to be the one you know closest to home. And we have a continuum that we look at, starting with you know mainstreaming, and then we have self uh, resource center classes and and self contained classes and out of district um, schools. And we need to look at that uh, based on the individual needs of the child. If, if I may, and also. Um, sorry, Ray. No, it's all right. Keep going. No, I, I, I also just, just wanted to mention, I think it's helpful for our listeners to, to know that I think Stacy and I would both agree that the most restrictive environment um, on, on the continuum that Stacy was referring to is home instruction, uh, mm -hmm. because home instruction is without any real peer, uh, while the least restrictive envi um, environment by, by definition is uh, a, a classroom environment close to home with non-disabled peers. Uh, so I, I think it's helpful to know that and to also know that there are, there are many there are many issues that come into play uh, that, that cause conflict about the issue of what the least restrictive environment should be. Uh, and we'll be getting into that because that is a, probably the bone of contention is the placement uh, a lot of time uh, and with those two factors as well as the IEP, which I guess I, uh, we should discuss the IEP before we go to the, the, the court decisions um, and how that is very important in terms of the following placement. Uh, Stacey, you want to follow up on the IEP? Sure. So the IEP is really the roadmap to special education, and it sets forth um, some really important concepts uh, that we use to develop an appropriate program for a child. Um, in New Jersey, you know, we're looking at the New Jersey Administrative Code 6A colon 14-1.1 at SEC, um, which sets forth, you know, all of the requirements um, under the IDEA that New Jersey is going to use to uh, meet the needs of our children with special education um, issues. Uh, so the IEP is the Individualized Education Plan, and it's individually designed to meet the unique needs of the child. Um, it includes a lot of different components, but the three uh, major components that we talk about are the present levels of academic achievement and uh, academic performance, the PLAF, uh, which is the where the child is now, and it's supposed to set forth academically, socially, emotionally, behaviorally, communication-wise, where the child is. And we use that information to develop annual goals, which set forth um, benchmarks that we anticipate. Uh, it's not a performance contract, but that we anticipate the child will be able to meet in a one-year period. Um, and then in addition to those annual goals, we're going to have short-term objectives, which are the waypoints between the present levels of where the child is now and where we anticipate the child is going to be in a one-year period. Um, and then based on that information and the goals and objectives, we're going to determine um, what the program is that the child is going to receive. And the IEP sets forth with specificity what that program is going to look like. Is the child going to be in a mainstream environment? Is the child going to receive accommodations and modifications? It's going to set forth what those accommodations and modifications are. Um, it's going to talk about any transitional needs the child may have. 
any related services the child may have, and really is the roadmap um, that's utilized by both the parents and the educators um, as the plan that we're going to follow. Um, it's done annually, but it can be reviewed um, as often as necessary uh, in order to make appropriate modifications and accommodations based on the child's needs. And I still, anything, the, the IEPs, <laughs> yeah, and it's usually developed by a child study team. Uh, Phil, could you describe? Unless well, you have something well, to add to the IEP. Well, well, let me. You, you, what you just said is very important, Ray. You just said it's usually developed by the child study team. And I, I, would, I would urge all who are listening to remember what Stacy said in the beginning about IDEA. And one of the main purposes of IDEA was to make sure that parents and guardians are equal participants in the development of programs and placements for students with disabilities. So the development of the IEP is is done through a process involving what is known as the IEP team. And the, the concept of team in special education is actually no different than the concept of team in athletics or anything else that we discuss. Um, it, it, is, it is something that is, is designed to collaboratively design programs and placements, ultimately the IEP that's discussed. So yes, the IEP team includes members of the child study team, which are school psychologists, learning disabilities teacher consultants, social workers, um, general, so-called general education teachers, uh, parents and guardians. Um, and, and underscoring that is, is the very important aspect of all members of that team, parent, guardian, child study team, are co-equal participants in the process of developing the IEP. And we're going to get to this in a little bit later on, but uh, I think both of you would agree this is probably maybe the one area where things could break down. And it's important for the school district to understand the parents. Uh, you know, they, their feelings, and when they come into this, they could be overwhelmed by that a little bit. Absolutely. You know, when we talk about an IEP meeting, um, you know, we're talking about a, a team of individuals from the school district, as Phil had indicated, you know, we're talking about the general ed teacher, we're talking about the special education teacher, we're talking about the case manager, um, there may be the learning consultant or the psychologist, you may have related service providers who are attending the meeting. So when a parent walks in and they're greeted by, you know, a team of anywhere from, you know, three to sometimes I've been at meetings with as many as 15 members of a school district, um, it can be a little overwhelming and a parent sort of feels that they're, you know, outnumbered and outgunned. Um, so, you know, I think that it is very important for everyone to um, keep the process collaborative um, and realize that everyone wants in what's in the best interest of the child and to work collaboratively towards that. And I think that that is one of the biggest, you know, issues that we have is that parents sometimes feel it's, you know, us against them, um, especially if what they're talking about or requesting isn't necessarily what the remainder of the team um, is recommending. Stacey, Stacey. And do you want to add anything to that? I from, do. From I do. Stacey, this is, this is such a critical point. Um, picture, if you will, how you would feel 
if you walk into a meeting and at the meeting around a table are up to 15 individuals, um, all of whom work at, at the same place. Um, Stacy and I would both argue that unless the um, members of the child study team, the case manager, unless something is done to make it clear that all are welcome at this meeting, all opinions are welcome at this meeting, that this meeting is designed to literally throw all concerns about uh, a child with a disability on the table for discussion, unless there's something that's going to be done to make it as comfortable a meeting as possible, then there are going to be problems that may or may not have anything to do with what the child actually needs. Um, and just as, as a tip uh, for listeners, Stacy and I have had the pleasure of, of being at uh, IEP team tables together for 25 years. I, I think Stacy would agree that the vast majority of times that we've been together, our efforts have had to be around the culture and dynamic of that IEP team and working hard to try to develop a collaborative environment um, around that table. Absolutely, and I think that that's a really important um, term and concept to keep in, in mind, collaboration. We're all there to collaborate, and, and I agree with, with Phil in that you know we have spent uh, many a meeting trying to sort of repair the bridges that may have been um, burned or, or frayed in the past, um, and I think that you know if we if we try and keep the process collaborative and and think of it that way, um, we may avoid litigation. So earlier you recall. Phil, I just want to ask: Is this in this child study team and in, in these uh, IEP meetings? Is it important maybe for a school district to look at their professional development for their staff? Uh, communication skills, but also with those parents, because from my experience, and I'm not in the buildings, but from my, this seems to be where the break, often the breakdown starts anyway. The the New Jersey Administrative Code that Stacy referred to uh, earlier um, specifically talks about the need for training and that the role of child study team members include, in fact, training of staff um, on all aspects of, uh, of special education, including uh, the dynamics of an IEP meeting. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I know that when Stacy and I have, have uh, presented before, I've, I've heard Stacy say on many occasions, uh, training, training, training. It's, it's all about training. I couldn't agree more. Uh, before we move on, I do have a question from uh, someone in the chat room, and I mentioned this to you before, uh, and I uh, didn't even wait for our answer before they asked the follow-up question. Uh, um, how can a small district, how can a small school district, children now that the the new dyslexic handbook is out? You know, what programs and instructions uh, have best served the interests of children in the small school? Small school, large school, I think that um, a district's best um, plan would be to utilize um, experts in the field of dyslexia uh, in terms of in-servicing um, and consultation to help them put together a solid foundation and make sure that they have a plan in place that's being utilized across 
uh, not only uh, grades, but buildings. I find that a lot of times, you know, what's being done in one elementary school is not the same procedure that's being done in a second elementary school, even if it's in, you know, the same district. We have a lot of great um, uh, agencies out there that are experts in this field. I mean, the Ann Rabinowitz Center, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University, um, I think Ryder College has, you know, um, uh, a learning skills uh, placement as well. All of those, uh, you know, places have uh, experts in the field of learning disabilities and dyslexia that really could come in and help a um, a district formulate a plan that they're going to use to ensure that they're meeting the needs of, of these children. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'd, I'd like to add something about what I think is between the lines of this very important question, and that is um, while we are not really supposed to talk about money when we talk about special education, I suspect that the inclusion of the concept of small schools and small school districts can be um, we we could we could also uh, suggest that uh, cash strapped school districts are now facing yet another set of um, requirements um, and how in in light of of an age of decreasing uh, budgets and and more and more difficulty with regard to funding anything how are we supposed to deal with that I would echo what Stacy said and and along those lines suggest that the time to talk about uh, the programs that that Stacy was recommending um, is before there is an issue or a problem in in, in other words um, in the middle of a of, of a crisis in special education, that is not going to be the time that you're going to make the best decisions with regard to program and placement issues, in this case, dealing with dyslexia. And from board members through the district, uh, the district, irrespective of size, should give itself the opportunity to talk out its goals and aspirations for students with disabilities, in this case, students with dyslexia, understanding that um, preparation and, and sound policy uh, is a wonderful way to ensure good results that will ultimately decrease costs, whether it's through litigation, whether it's through out-of-district placements, et cetera, um, in this, in this uh, very complicated area. And, and I agree, and, and I, I just want to uh, echo. Just, uh, I just want to say I think the word small was to your point that it's a little harder for the resources and yeah. they can probably share uh, personnel with other small districts in the area, uh, in this area. Uh, Stacey, I just wanted to throw this question out to you uh, because she did add a, a follow-up to it, and that's uh, and I think you kind of touched on this, what specific ev evidence-based programs should school districts uh, be looking at, and I guess you kind of led them to resources that you mentioned before. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, and even, you know, reaching out to some of the parent organizations like Decoding Dyslexia, um, you can reach out to, you know, um, uh, the other ones that I talked about. I think that they are all really good resources. And in fact, if you look at um, the uh, 
the individuals who actually wrote the dyslexia handbook, um, all of those individuals who were involved are actually individuals who would be more than happy to share their knowledge. Um, I know a lot of them personally, um, and you know, if you were to call them and, and say, hey, look, we'd like to you know talk to you about what our district can do, I am sure that they would be more than happy to you know talk to you about what is you know good educational policy, what are the programs that you should be looking at, um, and. And, you know, really putting something in place now, I agree with Phil 100% that, you know, an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, if we could put together a really good program up front and, and address these needs, in the end, school districts would wind up saving themselves you know, thousands of dollars because we wouldn't be looking at litigation. We wouldn't be looking at out-of-district placements. Um, the reason we look at those uh, placements is because, you know, parents uh, and sometimes school district personnel don't feel that the child's needs are being appropriately addressed. So let's address those needs so that we don't have to go to the next step. And that's going to be, uh, I guess, the theme of the two of you, uh, and you kind of said it, is being a little preventive in the area, and that will save money down the road, uh, whether it's with professional development or looking at these training pro uh, these programs, uh, and that'll be our theme for the, the program, right? Yes, Un so. undeniably. Uh, I you know before we get into some of these other communication issues, I probably should have mentioned this before. There were two important Supreme Court decisions that also kind of like guide us uh, as to what our standards are. Uh, and one is uh, just recently Andrew, and the other one was Rally. Uh, Phil, why don't you just touch on those two? Um, and they're important. Sure. Uh, the, the on on March 22nd of this year, the United States Supreme Court. Uh, uh, came out with its decision in what's called Andrew, E-N-D-R-E-W, versus Douglas County. Um, and at, at that time, it was, uh, it was before um, the, the court was a full nine-member court, but it was an eight-member court. This was a unanimous decision of the United States Supreme Court answering the question, what should the, the national definition of free, appropriate public education, FAPE, B, for all students with disabilities under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And the court uh, articulated the following um, standard for what the definition of FAPE needs to be throughout this country. To meet its substantive obligations or substantive obligations under the IDEA, a school must offer an IEP, that's the individualized education plan that Stacy was talking about before, reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. So what, what the court did was it took a look at a, uh, a, Col uh, a, a Colorado is in, in the 10th federal circuit, and in that circuit, the definition of FAPE was just above what's known as de minimis. In other words, just a little bit better than nothing. And the court, the United States Supreme Court, soundly rejected uh, that as such a, a low bar uh, from which uh, school districts and, and parents and guardians should be aspiring. Um, instead, uh, it has a... Uh, 
a requirement that the, the, the school must offer an IEP reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. The other decision uh, about which you were asking me, Ray, was the Rowley decision, which came out of the Third Circuit, our own New Jersey circuit. Um, and, and that was, while it didn't completely define um, uh, FAPE as clearly as the Andrew decision did, it set the Third Circuit standard as to what school districts are required to, to, uh, to do. And in fact, because of the Rowley decision, the Andrew decision doesn't make a lot of difference for, for us in New Jersey because the standard has always been quite a bit higher under the Rowley standard than mm -hmm. um, under what the Tenth Circuit said about the de minimis standard. In fact, uh, you know, Stacey, the, you have anything? I was just going to say the Raleigh court um, talked about the basic floor of opportunity being met when a child receives personalized instruction with sufficient support services to permit the child to benefit educationally from that instruction. So Phil is 100% right. We had higher than that de minimis. So, you know, I agree that Andrew um, is a great decision, um, but probably in New Jersey isn't as wow as it would be in the Tenth Circuit because in the Tenth Circuit, clearly the bar has risen significantly. We've already, you know, been working under the premise that our children are entitled to significant and meaningful educational benefit, and I think that's what Raleigh talks about. Also, And that's um, important, though, for everyone to know is that New Jersey, now it's nationwide, but the, the, the benchmark for the students is not just getting by. It's been raised over the course of time. Correct. Yeah, yeah a a absolutely. Um, and and part of the story of Andrew, I think, is instructive, even in a state like New Jersey, where the standard has been the, the, the higher rally standard anyway. Part of the story in Andrew is that the parents of the child uh, reacted very negatively to a sense that the district was employing a kind of a cookie-cutter approach to uh, to the IEP. Again, you remember Stacy explaining individualized educational program. Uh, that that is a dynamic document that is geared towards the very specific needs of an individual child. Uh, with the advent of uh, the technology that we have, it's not difficult to cut and paste these days, a lot of the language that we find in our IEPs, individual educational plans. Mm -hmm. What Andrew responded to was the sense that nothing much was changing from year to year in the IEP. There wasn't attention to the concept of progress of this child. And one of the lessons of the Andrew case, aside from the, the groundbreaking definition, is the idea that Every time uh, an IEP team gets together to develop new language for, for an IEP, it needs to be specifically tailored to the needs of that particular child. Okay. Uh, and let's, I want to move on to where things can break down a little bit more. We talked a little bit about it with the child study team. Um, I want to add one thing to the child study team because I've heard this uh, you know, we talked about the parents being there. Parents can also have an advocate for, for them. Uh, maybe they do feel overwhelmed and they go to an advocate. Uh, what's the role the advocate uh, 
because I've heard from districts that they feel that that kind of like throws things off. Stacy, I'm sure you might have a little different perspective on that. Um, well, under the the New Jersey Administrative Code, a parent has a right to bring um, outside professionals or individuals with them as long as they give the district advance notice um, that they are bringing the individual. And in fact, when the parent gets the notice of the IEP meeting, um, you know it. it there's a box to check if you're attending and who you're bringing with you. So a parent has a right if they feel overwhelmed to bring not only an advocate, um, they certainly you know can bring an attorney who can advocate for the child even if there's no dispute at the time. The parent can also mm-hmm. bring any outside professionals um, who know the child and are working you know with the child. So if there's a um, a therapist or there's a learning consultant or there's a um, a tutor. Um, they can also bring, you know, a grandparent or a friend. They can bring whoever they want um, to help them feel comfortable at that meeting and to help advocate for the child. Um, you know, my hope would be that if a parent brings uh, an advocate or an outside professional, that those individuals would um, attempt to work cooperatively and collaboratively to try and meet the needs of the child. You know, I always tell, um, you know, my clients, you get more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. Um, you know, to go into a meeting and and make it adversarial really doesn't help anyone and really puts everybody on edge and really breaks down the process, which is meant to be, you know, collaboration in terms of developing that program. Phil? Well, uh, this is is a really important point because uh, you'll recall that we talked earlier about what the impression is of a parent or guardian walking into an IEP team meeting and the importance of the district to facilitate a culture around that table um, that that uh, encourages a free expression, conflict, disagreement, etc. There is absolutely nothing wrong with disagreement in the area of special education um, as long as the members of the IEP team are viewed as co-equal members. Uh, what happens what what is what is a a major problem is when disagreement is also accompanied by a lack of trust and the uh need for parents or guardians to bring an advocate and or an attorney to an IEP team meeting is a symptom of a uh, some kind of breakdown of trust between the family and the school district um and very often, and you know, I mean, again, uh, there's a reason why Stacy and I, um, in the 25 years we've been uh, um, working uh, at various IP team tables, we have never had a, a, uh, a trial together um, because our focus uh, when we go to these meetings has always been to try to do whatever we can to return the parties to the essential collaborative nature of the IEP team, as opposed to taking over a process. Um, I think that, that the inclusion of, of lawyers in the special education uh, process uh, can either be uh, very helpful in returning to a collaborative process, or it can become a very expensive, unnecessarily so, um, part of a process that needs to be returned to the educators, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've talked a lot about the communication at this 
with the child study team and the IEP meetings. I've seen you both of you speak before, and you have other reasons. Breakdowns occur for other reasons too. Um, and one of them you said is lack of philosophy. How does that play into, and what do you mean by lack of philosophy? I guess you mean on the district's part. You want to take that, Phil? Sure, sure. I, I, you know, this is a very complicated area. And uh, one of the things that, that I note as a school board attorney is I attend a lot of board meetings, for example. And on many uh, um, agendas of board meetings, there are line items requiring uh, boards of education to expend significant uh, sums of money on, for example, out-of-district placements. The, the board members very often feel frustrated in not being able to have any input or decision-making as to whether or not those funds need to be uh, approved because they're basically uh, arising out of an IEP, which is a legal document, which needs to be approved. I would argue that, that at every level of a school district, there needs to be discussion about the nature of how we educate our students with disabilities so that the school district can understand its responsibilities in greater depth and develop programs um, that will assist the practitioners in um, educating students with disabilities. Uh, our experiences, um, certainly from some of the um, uh, presentations that we've made, and in my experience, my personal experience as a school board attorney, there's very little conversation at the board level about uh, goals and objectives around the issue of special education. Um, and I would I would urge districts to begin that uh, dialogue um, to establish goals, philosophies, et cetera, so that we we understand in a much greater way uh, what our what, what our expectations should be for our students. So the professional development is not just for the staff in the buildings, but also for the board itself. Actually, board in special members, education. Board members have to. Absolutely. I, I, I'll, give, I'll give you a quick answer. Absolutely. That's, a, that, that's fine. You, you know, I don't get too many people to say I'm right all the time. So, you know, I, <laughs> so uh, all right. I just uh, we're getting the uh, time is actually flying by. Um, but you said they, you know, a, a board pretty much has to uh, not pretty much. They have to approve the IEP. They they don't really have any leeway in that area. But if a district says has an IEP, sometimes if they stray away from that, that could cause problems. And uh, uh, Stacy, is that one of the problems that you see sometimes with districts? They might have an IEP, it might be a good IEP, but they don't follow it. Correct. Implementation and integrity is is something that we talk about all the time. Um, and there seems to be, you know, a, a lack of of continuity between sometimes between the people that are um, developing the IEP and then the individuals who are going to be implementing that IEP. And I think that it's really important that there be that continuity. That um, you know, one of the things that I always tell my clients um, is that at the beginning of the year, you know, ask for a meeting between you, um, your case manager, and your child's teacher 
where you're going to go through the IEP and sort of, you know, look at what what is this document. It's not a document that, you know, you develop and then stick in a drawer. This is supposed to be the plan that we're following. And unless everybody understands, including the uh, related service providers um, and the specialty teachers, you know, one of the biggest things that I see a lot of times is, you know, the art teacher, the gym teacher have no idea sometimes that a child has accommodations or special education services. Um, and a lot of times those kids struggle significantly because what's being provided in, you know, the classroom may not be carried over into those other areas. Um, so that's one of the areas that we see the breakdown. And I think the other is, you know, just making sure that the services from year to year are being implemented appropriately, and that goes back to you know the training um, and and making sure that the plan is individually tailored to the child's needs. That a parent doesn't feel that oh you know this is what we have, so this is only what we can give you, as compared to really figuring out what the child's needs are. If the adults in the school district don't fully understand uh, the requirements of a student's IEP they may inadvertently be the triggers for some of the problems that occur for students with disabilities in the area of um, code of conduct, harassment, intimidation, and bullying. Um, we've had many, many cases where there has been a, a Stacy mentioned before about a specialist who, by virtue of the way that they're speaking to a student, if they had, if they had been better prepared in terms of understanding what that student's IEP required, might speak to that student a little bit differently. Um, and and that, that's, a, that's a very specific and down-to-the-ground um, example, but I can assure you it happens throughout the country, um, and it underscores the importance of what Stacy was just saying. And it underscores what both of you have said before, is professional development and communication are very important. Uh, Absolutely. Special education. Uh, and one of the other things that I, I've seen you talk about uh, were uh, you said a lack of knowledge of IDEA by I, the staff is, uh, I guess it's kind of a, a little bit of a follow-up. Uh, is that mostly with the non-special ed teachers? Um, understanding of the laws associated with students with disabilities, whether it's IDEA, uh, there's another law called Section 504, of the Rehabilitation Act, um, the the so-called general education teacher must be uh, fully cognizant of the requirements of those laws in order for her or him to um, facilitate uh, a, a, a classroom in compliance with those laws. Right. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, one of the other things that you mentioned is the uh, the failure to differentiate instruction. Uh, what do you mean by that, um, Stacy? I think, you know, when we talk about differentiating instruction, we're talking about individualizing it to the child's needs. You know, one of the other um, areas that we see, uh, you know, a breakdown is the us and them mentality. You know, we have regular education mainstream teachers and we have special education teachers and, and sometimes they think, you know, this is not in the purview of what I do. I think that, you know, one of the things districts can do to sort of make sure that their programs are, you know, appropriately working and it's just good education is to really go back to this training and it's not just training for our special education teachers, but training for our regular education teachers as well as to how they can modify and accommodate and really meet 
meet the needs of all of their learners in the classroom. You know, just because you're a special education student or a general education student, each of those students learns differently. You know, we don't have to label them as one or the other. Good teaching requires that a teacher figure out how a particular child learns and then differentiate that for that child. Um, sometimes the breakdown occurs because we get a teacher more so in, in the general ed than, than in the special ed where they run their classroom, you know, a, a certain way and all of their learners are going to learn a certain way. And if a child can't learn that way, they're not really willing to do what needs to be done to accommodate and modify. So I think that that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Okay. Uh, well, I, I might argue that everyone learns a little bit differently. <laughs> so yes. the differentiated instruction is probably a good educational model no matter what. Uh, uh, so, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, so we're coming to the end. Uh, I'll just give you any final recommendations. Uh, Stacey, I'll start with you. I just think, you know, collaborate, and I would go back to, you know, in-service. I think in-service is so important. You know, if we can in-service and provide the services within the public school and have the training, um, I think that everybody wins. And Phil? Um, there is nothing more beautiful than a classroom that has a special ed teacher and a general ed teacher, and you can't tell who's who. And uh, the, the, that, that model, I think, is something to which we should all aspire. And for all the, the tips that, that Stacy had mentioned before, um, that's the way to go. Okay, I'd like to thank uh, Phil Stern and Stacey Green for joining us on this program. Uh, thank you both. Uh, I think Pleasure. in 45 minutes we try to cover as much in special ed as we can. And the, I know when Phil gives his presentation, he holds up the, the statutes that got it, and it's pretty thick. So uh, we gave the people the abridged version. So thank you both, uh, and I hope everyone enjoyed the program. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for having us. Okay, bye now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.